Welcome, guys. Welcome to Cornerstone. My name is Tim. I'm the college and young adult pastor here. Just a quick note about Kingdom Assignment. Uh, a bunch of our kids in our kids' ministry are participating in Kingdom Assignment. So what they've done is they have rallied together and organized a kids' marketplace. I don't know if you saw it being set up outside. That's happening after service today. And uh, they have everything from artwork to baked goods. My son has a sourdough starter. If anyone wants to get in on that sourdough game, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? I feel like half the planet during the pandemic got in on that, but if you didn't, we got your back. First uh, John 2, verse 6, in the New Testament, it goes like this. It says, whoever claims that I abide in God ought to walk just as Jesus walked. From the outset of the church, Christians have understood that following Jesus is not simply about believing in him, but about becoming more like him. Knowing about him has never been enough. We want to know him. We want to walk with him because as we do, our lives are completely changed. And so we want to be able to walk like he walked, act like he acted, view the world like he viewed the world, and love people like he loved them. And so throughout history, the church has developed various traditions that have served as sort of like a, a guide to help us do just that, to, to follow Jesus well, to be transformed through him as we do that, and to enjoy the abundant life that he promised. And these traditions are often referred to as streams. And I kind of like the visual that that presents us because it makes me think about how a river, it, it gains strength and volume as many uh, smaller streams kind of collect together and, and form like a, a powerful river. And in the same way, our God has chosen to bring together many streams that have found themselves separated and isolated from one another at various points in history. But as these streams find their unity and harmony in Christ, they form a great river of the Spirit that brings God greater glory and dispenses greater blessing and joy to his people. And so that's why the inspiration for the series we're in is uh, from, it's a verse from Psalm 46 that says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And during these weeks together, we're exploring and discovering the beauty of each of these traditions. And so we're several weeks in on it now, but I uh, thought I would throw these various traditions and streams up on the screen for us to see. These include the evangelical stream, the word-centered life, the contemplative stream, the prayer-filled life, the holiness stream, the virtuous life, the charismatic stream, the spirit-empowered life, the justice stream, the compassionate life, the incarnational stream, the sacramental life, and the messianic stream, the seamless life. And personally, one of my favorite things about Cornerstone Church is that we don't pit one stream or tradition against another, but rather we try to provide room and space for all of them to instruct us, inspire us, and to invite us further into the way of Jesus. And so this morning, I'm excited to explore the holiness stream with you and invite you, if you're willing, to take a step in. But before we can actually talk about the goodness of holiness, I want to clarify what holiness isn't. Because unfortunately, the word can leave somewhat of a bad taste for some people. For some, to be holy makes them think of someone who's, who's arrogant 
or pretentious or maybe self-righteous. For some, it's become just like a byword for legalism and perfectionism. We have this phrase, holier than thou, which isn't exactly a good thing, right? I mean, these are the kind of the people that we dread being around, let alone want to become like. But this is all a sad and unfortunate mischaracterization of what holiness really is. The holiness stream as a tradition, it developed out of what can be described as purifying movements at different points in history, really dating all the way back to the, to the first and second century. Christians have become discontented with the compromise and the corruption of the world around them and even in the church around them. And so movements began to, to, to arise to, to call followers of Jesus back into purity, to call followers of Jesus back into order, back into faithfulness, back into obedience. It was a reminder that the inner reality of a person ought to be congruent with their outer reality. So for example, the Franciscan movement started by St. Francis of Assisi in the early 13th century was a purifying movement. The early Puritans of the 16th century was a purifying movement. The early Quakers were a purifying movement. The early Methodists in the 18th century with, with uh, leaders like John Wesley and Phoebe Palmer was a purifying movement. Dietrich Bonhoeffer started a movement called the Confessing Church in Germany as the Nazis took over and infiltrated uh, the German church. This was a purifying movement. And all of these, and actually so much more throughout history, have helped give shape and form to this holiness stream to inspire Christians to live what's called a virtuous life, a life that's modeled after the deeply virtuous life and character of Jesus. Now, when I say the word virtuous, I'm not saying perfectionism. I'm not saying legalism. I'm, it doesn't mean strict rules and regulations. Though I'll be the first to admit that, that sadly some of these purifying movements have become distorted and twisted into to a strict and even abusive moralism into manipulating control over people's behavior and have become the very thing that they, they sought to resist and have become so far from the way that Jesus actually lived and the things that he actually taught. But a virtuous life. This word virtue, it comes from the Greek word. It's all over the New Testament. It's the word erite. And erite simply means to function well. A virtuous life is a life that functions well. Have you guys ever had something that didn't work quite right? But rather than getting something new, rather than fixing it, rather than getting an upgrade, you just kind of like learn to live with it. Like maybe you had like that, that laptop, that, that one letter on the keyboard just didn't work quite right. It's like the letter H, you just had to push it just like a little bit harder. You're like, ah, I can just like deal with it for a while. Or maybe uh, you've got that barbecue grill, the igniter goes out after like four days of owning it, right? And so you got to stick your head in there to manually light it and you're crossing your fingers that you don't blow your eyebrows off. Not speaking from experience or anything, but... When I was in high school, I drove the worst car, the absolute worst car. It was a red 1994 Acura Legend. And uh, I can't even begin to list the kinds of issues that this thing experienced, but my least favorite of them all is that this car honked its horn on its own at random times. 
all the time. And so I would be driving up I-25 and Denver traffic and it would just lay into the horn. I'd be sitting behind people at red lights and it just starts popping off. And do you know what I learned? People do not like being honked at. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I think, I think between the years 2000 and 2002, I was the most hated person on the road in Arvada, Colorado. It was like the notorious beat red Acura legend, hated. I mean, the stress of driving. There was this one time I was going through the drive-through, all right, and I'm just waiting patiently for my food. It was taking a few extra seconds, but you know what? I had some time. I wasn't in a rush. My car was in a rush. My car just starts laying on the horn in the drive-through. The window's open, and I'm like, oh, dear Lord, they're going to spit in my food. And so they come out. I'm just like, I'm sorry, that wasn't me. I don't really know what's going on. And the, the thing is about this car is that it didn't even matter if I was driving it or if it was on. I'm not joking with you. Four in the morning, in the middle of the night, the thing is parked outside. There's not a human being around and the thing is blasting. I would have to go out in the middle of the night and disconnect the battery. This is the only way to do it, to, to prevent the car from waking up the entire neighborhood. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like reliving the whole thing in front of you. Man, I got so used to this piece of junk of a car that when I finally started driving a different car, I forgot how good it could be. Like the piece. It's like, wow, this is actually kind of nice. Right? When we finally make the upgrade, when we finally get that thing fixed, whether it be a computer or a car or a piece of equipment, or maybe it's like that toothache you've been living with for a while or that, that pain in your body, right? sometimes it's brokenness becomes so normal to us that we forget what it's like to have it work right. And when we finally do, it feels life-changing. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like total freedom, like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is actually really nice. And in a serious way, we have become so accustomed to dysfunction in this world. Dysfunction and disorder in our lives, whether it be in our relationships, our thought life, our decisions, our daily rhythms, our goals and priorities, our systems, you name it. It has become so normalized that, that people assume that it is just the way it is. And we've gotten comfortable with it. But Jesus, he has come to offer us another way to live. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, it says... Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And along the same line of thinking, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24, it says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. A holy life is a life that functions the way it's intended to. It's meant to, it means to live life the way God designed it to be lived, to put off a way of being that doesn't work, that's broken and dysfunctional and disordered and to be renewed 
and to let your renewed inward life shape a new outward life, a life that is rooted in another order, a life that is established in a greater kingdom. And so to live in holiness, this virtuous life is a way of living that actually allows us to experience our truest and fullest humanity. In living a holy life, we become more like the person God created us to be. And so while some people view a holy life with a sense of dread or disinterest or even suspicion because of those mischaracterizations, the truth is that when you actually live a holy life, it will lead you towards a deep exhale of freedom. I think both for you and the people around you. All right, so what I wanna do for the next few minutes is I wanna name some of the important characteristics of this virtuous life, those things that help our lives operate in alignment with God's design. And the first thing is, is a sustained attention to the heart. Living with a sustained attention to the heart. Because a healthy and holy life begins with what's in here. Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. This paints the picture of, of guarding something precious that's in your custody. I mean, you just, you just can't take your eyes off of it. And some might have this image in their mind of a holy person as someone who's like infallible. Or maybe they at least just act like they can't do anything wrong, like they're immune to making mistakes or falling into sin. But it's, it's actually the opposite. A holy life is one that, where we have a, a humble and realistic view of ourselves, where we acknowledge just how vulnerable and susceptible and capable our heart is to sin and to dysfunction and to compromise. And we know we have to take this seriously. Sustained attention to the heart means that you regularly and thoughtfully examine what your heart is loving right now. Because it's possible that your heart can develop an affection for something other than the Lord without you even really noticing it unless you're paying attention. Timothy Keller once wrote this. He says, what the heart loves, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. And so we diligently watch our heart because it will determine the course of our life. It is the source of our actions. And so holiness focuses on the formation and transformation of this source because that will change everything else in our life. And so while the outward parts of our life, they do matter, it's not our primary focus, but rather our focus is on the source of those outward parts. That's why we read in the New Testament, Jesus, he strongly challenges religious leaders of the early first century because they twisted this whole thing around. Their focus was on ritual purity. If you washed properly, if you ate the right foods, if you dressed the right way, if you avoided interaction with certain people, then you could be holy. But Jesus, he turns our attention away from ritual purity and points us towards a purity of the heart out of which a holy life flows. And Jesus, he put it this way. He said in John chapter 15, verse five, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And what he's saying here is that, is that it is union with him that purifies the heart. It is our union with him that gives us the power to function well and live whole and complete lives. Because when the branch is integrated into the vine, united with the vine and receiving its life from the vine, good fruit will naturally be produced from the inside out. And so we need to live with a sustained attention to the heart. But we also need to live with a faithful response to the seasons. A faithful response to the seasons. Let me ask you something. How do you measure success in your spiritual life? What's your metric? I read an article from Harvard Business Review that was basically about success and growth in the corporate world. And the author said, steady, predictable growth is what every big company strives for and what investors prize above all else. And whether this is the reality for every company or not, it makes a lot of sense, right? When it comes to, to health, when it comes to success in business, we want to see that linear growth, right? We want to see a line that steadily moves upward as time goes on. We want to see better production than the year before. We want to see better performance than the year behind us. And this might be a sensible model for a company or an organization, but one of the mistakes that we can make is we try to apply this model to spiritual life, but our spiritual lives just don't work this way. Because no matter how healthy or holy a person is, life just simply doesn't follow a nice, clean, linear line of always looking better and prettier and more productive than the years before. Because life can at times without notice and despite our best efforts descend into a place that feels cold and confusing and difficult. A place where there is doubt, a place where there is suffering, a place where there are trials. And it can be, a, it can be tempting to analyze all that and think like, oh, it's a red flag, there's a real problem here. This person, man, they must be doing something wrong. This is a, a byproduct of total spiritual failure. They need to try harder, but that's just not always the case. And I'll tell you something that some of the holiest and most earnest followers of Jesus that I know encounter what's called a dark night of the soul at various points in their life. And I've read stories of people that we would consider giants of faith wrestle with their greatest doubts at the end of their life. People like Mother Teresa, people like Eugene Peterson, who translated, he wrote the message translation of the Bible and someone that I would consider totally steeped in the holiness tradition. You see, the truth is that our spiritual lives are a lot more like seasons than boardroom graphs. And our health and our maturity and a holy life is not measured by how much we do. It's not measured by how well we perform, but by how we respond to the seasons we find ourselves in. And there are all kinds of seasons. There are seasons of opportunities and seasons of closed doors. There are seasons of wonderment and discovery and seasons where things die. There are seasons where hallelujahs flow like a river and seasons where the ground is hard. Everything feels difficult and we just feel stuck. There are seasons where everything seems to be illuminated and mysteries are revealed. And then there are dark nights of the soul where you wonder if your prayers are even being heard. 
And we all enter into these seasons, these metaphorical springs and summers and falls and winters of the soul, regardless of our spiritual prowess, regardless of our love of God. And we don't always really get a say in when those seasons come or how long they last, but it's okay. Because God, he's not looking for you to be perfect. He's not looking for you to perform. He just wants you to be faithful in the place you find yourself in right now. Holy life, ultimately it produces good fruit, right? But we can't forget that fruit actually needs different seasons in order to grow. It makes me think of Psalm 1, 1 through 3. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It sure sounds like a life of holiness to me. And it continues to say, he is, a, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, you see that? He is like a tree that produces fruit, but in its season, at its proper time. You see, each season has its unique activities. Each season has its unique tasks and duties that have to be done. And each season has its necessary constraints. It's foolish to plant corn in January. It's foolish to transplant and relocate your shrubs in July when it's hot and dry. If we wanna harvest in the fall, we need to make sure we plow and we plant in the spring, right? There are seasons to plant, there are seasons to wait, there are seasons to, to reap, there are seasons to store up the grain. And a holy life, a life that functions well as God intended it is, is one that is in tune with this rhythm of the soul. It's a life that is faithfully and obediently, not just doing the right thing, but at the right time so that fruit will grow when it's supposed to grow. And a characteristic of holiness is, is stopping to prayerfully consider, man, what season is my heart in right now? And prayerfully considering where is God in this season right now? And asking him, what, what are you asking of me in this season right now? And just for the record, Jesus is a man of all seasons. He is present in them all. And therefore, even the darkest and coldest of them is holy ground. Each being used to produce incredible fruit in your life and through your life in its season at the right time. And so we learn to faithfully respond to the seasons. And thirdly, we learn to develop skills in faith. Over the summer, uh, last summer, my family, we moved to a new, new neighborhood in Lafayette. And on the property was this really old and nasty treehouse looking structure on a giant pole. There's a picture right here. Let's throw that up there. There's this thing. I, we got there, I was like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Maybe it's like a treehouse or like, 
a duck blind for shooting animals. There's like no way to get up into it. So I'm not really sure what that's all about. Uh, but either way, it was nasty. Right? There was like animal droppings in it. There was old carpet that was like decades old. This sucker was a five-star hotel for wasps. It was grody. This thing had to go. And so what I did was I borrowed my neighbor's chainsaw and I watched a couple of videos on how to cut down a tree. And then I convinced my wife that I knew what I was doing, right? So this is my wife, Lindsay and I, shortly before. You can see the look of confidence on her face because I told her I could do it. You can see the look of confidence on my face like, oh dear Lord, I hope we don't die. <laughs> but guess what? We did it. We did it. We chopped that sucker down. Glad I did that. I was pretty proud of myself. No one got hurt. And if you didn't know any better, you might actually think that I know what I'm doing. But I know better. Because here's the reality, you guys. There's a difference between taking a shortcut to learn a quick skill for a moment through something like YouTube and carefully developing an ingrained skill for life. Right, YouTube, it helped me figure out how to cut this one thing down one time, but that doesn't mean I'm ready to open like a tree removal business. It doesn't mean that I'm ready to clear a forest. It doesn't mean that I know how to cut down trees of all shapes and sizes. I have no idea what I'm doing. And for those of us who follow Jesus, that virtuous life is much the same. The discipline and the strength to clear out a forest of selfishness and pride and lust and greed, it doesn't just come in an afternoon. And we don't acquire things like deep patience and generosity and hospitality and humility in a moment. And doing good as an automatic response, it doesn't come automatically, does it? And in terms of our relationship with Jesus, I mean, an intimate conversation with God, becoming sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is moving in my life, being responsive to the Lord's voice, it's not just like a skill we master in a weekend. You see, there are no shortcuts or fast tracks towards these kinds of things in life. And I know that our instant society of streaming and social media has convinced us that we can master a skill in four minutes or change the world with an Instagram post, but this is not the way a life of spiritual health and holiness works. No, a holy life is developed usually slowly through faithful and consistent discipline over time. As Eugene Peterson put it, puts it, it is a long obedience in the same direction. And this is the whole reason why there is such an emphasis on things like spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, and the holiness stream. Prioritizing things like regular prayer and reading and meditating on scripture, worship, Sabbath, confession, repentance, living in Christ-centered community, and many others. These practices are not like the end goal of a Christian. Those aren't the things that we're striving for. They are a means to an end. These spiritual practices, they, they help us develop a greater responsiveness to God. They help us cultivate new patterns of life that are rooted in God's kingdom and not in the dysfunction of the world. They help ground us in the love of God and ingrain in us new skills to navigate life with and overcome our challenges with. They help us develop a deep joy in doing good. They force us to slow down long enough to examine our heart and take a pulse on the state of our soul. They provide opportunities to deepen our loving relationship with God. 
You see, spiritual practices are skills in faith that as we develop them over time, they help us access God's power to function well and to live a life of holiness. The virtuous life is one where we develop skills in faith. And so there's a sustained attention to the heart. There's a faithful response to the seasons. There's developing skills in faith. And ultimately, the ultimate goal, you guys, behind all this isn't like to be a better person. The ultimate goal behind all this isn't even to like be a better Christian. Ultimately, the goal behind all this is an ever deeper formation of our lives to reflect the goodness of God. The ultimate goal is an ever greater union with him. And this is one of the contributions of the holiness stream that I feel is so inspiring to my own personal life. It is, a, it is living with the conviction that with God, there is always, always more. It's a belief that when Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest, what this means is that when we drink from the well of Jesus's life and love and goodness and grace and blessing, we will never reach the bottom of it. No matter how long, no matter how far you've walked with Jesus, there is yet more of his joy to receive, more of his love to enjoy, more of his grace to fill you, more of his strength to uphold you, more of his delight to be sung over you. There is more healing to be offered you. There is more formation to be done, more of you that you can become, more goodness and glory to unveil and encounter. This is good news, right? This is the way of following the Lord. It makes me think of what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter three. And worship team, you guys can come up on stage. I, I wanna conclude with this passage here. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. And I wanna read from the Passion Translation. Oh, somebody's gonna be upset about that one. <laughs> Philippians 3, 12 through 14, it says, I admit that I haven't yet acquired the absolute fullness that I'm pursuing. But I run with passion into his abundance so that I may reach the purpose that Jesus Christ has called me to fulfill and wants me to discover. And I don't depend on my own strength to accomplish this. However, I do have one compelling focus. I forget all of the past as I fasten my heart to the future instead. I run straight for the divine invitation of reaching the heavenly goal and gaining the victory prize through the anointing of Jesus. Cornerstone Church, there is more. And the holy life is about leaving behind a life of settling for less to take hold of more of heaven here on earth to run into his abundance. And so as we, as we finish, we're gonna worship together, but I wanna do this. I wanna offer us just like a moment of reflection and conversation with God. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I wanna throw on the screen just three questions. And I wanna ask you to just pick one of them. And maybe even just ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, hey, which, which one of these do you wanna talk about with me this morning?
The first question is this, what does union with God look like in your life right now? Because Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And when you abide in me and I am in you, you will produce much fruit in your life. Oh, we strive for ever greater union with him. And you can ask God, man, what is this union? What does it actually look like in my life now? Where do I see it showing up? And how is that fruit being produced as the life of the, the vine flows into my life? Or perhaps you can talk to the Lord about the second question. What season is your soul in right now? Maybe it's a spring, a summer, an autumn, a winter. Because the Lord isn't looking for you to be perfect or to perform. He's just asking you to trust him and be faithful, as faithful as you can in the season you're in. And you can ask the Lord, okay, where am I? And where are you? God, where are you in this? And what are you asking of me in this place? Or you can spend time talking to the Lord about this. What does Jesus want you to learn from him? He said, take my yoke upon me, or take my yoke upon you rather, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And as followers of Jesus, we are called disciples. Disciples means student, it means learner, but not so much in the academic sense, like sense of like a, like a classroom setting, but disciple in the sense of like, more of like an apprentice who's at the work site of a craftsman, watching him move, watching him work, watching him cut, watching him act. But not just watching, but practicing asking questions, trying, failing, getting back up again, starting over, practicing again. With each step, becoming more like your teacher. As you watch Jesus in your life, what is he asking you to learn from him right now in this season of your life? Okay, so I'm gonna pray briefly. And then I just wanna invite you guys to reflect and have a conversation with God about one of these. God, I am, I marvel that I will never reach the bottom of your love and grace and mercy and goodness. that as much as I might encounter or experience or hear from you, when I wake up tomorrow, there will be more. <laughs> there will be more for me, more of you. And Lord, I pray that you would show us how to pursue that, how to run into it. God, I don't wanna get to heaven's gates with anything left on the table. I want to receive, I wanna hold on to, I wanna grasp, I want to enjoy every little or big thing that you have to offer me in my life. 
Jesus. Now, Lord, I pray that you would just spend some time with us right now in prayer and reflection and conversation.